Tēnā koutou katoa, ko Branavan toku ingoa. Tēnē te mihi atu ki te mana whenua, ko Ngāti Whatua. Nau mai haere mai ki a koutou, ki Waituhi o Tamaki. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Hi everyone, my name is Branavan Yanalingam. I'm a writer based in Wellington and who was born in Sri Lanka. It is my absolute privilege to welcome you all here to this event, The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida with Shehan Karanatilika. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, before we get underway, just a little bit of housekeeping. Um, can you make sure that your phones are on silent? Uh, feel free to um, share uh, thoughts or images from, from the session, but please be considerate to your fellow audience members. Um, we'd like to thank the Asia New Zealand Foundation, Te Fiti Fito Tuhono, for their support for the session. Um, we're going to dive straight into the book, but there will be some room for questions at the end. Um, when there are questions, uh, there are some mics dotted around the, um, dotted around the space. Uh, if you could queue up there uh, to ask those questions, that would be great. We'll try and do that with about 10 minutes to go. Um, so we, uh, I thought I'd start with a question for the non-Sri Lankans in the audience, um, and that's just a little bit of a description um, of what was the political situation in Sri Lanka in 1990. I mean, I know we've only got an hour, but uh, we'll see how <laughs> yeah. we go. Um, a very confusing situation, and I, yeah, it didn't make sense to me back then. I mean, I was a teenager at the time, um, and researching it, it made less sense. Um, but there was a war on, there were three wars on triple fronts. Um, so there was the separatist struggle with um, the Tamil Tigers and the Sri Lankan army. Uh, there was a Marxist insurrection in the south, um, and the Indian peacekeeping force had uh, boots on the ground. And um, yeah, there was, there was a peace accord in 87, but uh, obviously got disregarded. And I, I just remember it as a time when um, schools closed down for, for periods, there were curfews, and you lived in this, uh, it seemed like a city under siege of checkpoints and all of that. And my memory, and I talk about the Colombo bubble and being insulated from it, but I do have memories of going to school and seeing bodies on the side of the road and the grown-ups would kind of turn your head away from it. And you'd ask, well, who was that? Why were they killed? And no one had any answers because it could have been anyone and they could have been killed by a variety of parties for any reason. And um, yeah, uh, 1990s, that's when uh, my family moved from... Uh, from Civil War Sri Lanka to Wanganui. And uh, <laughs> then uh, I kind of, yeah, dealing with being in Wanganui collegiate as a 15-year-old was uh, occupied my time. So I never really went back to it until, um, yeah, until I started thinking about this book. And um, my initial germ of the idea was uh, what if, what if Sri Lanka's dead could speak? What if the victims of our many wars could speak? And it was obviously inspired by 2009, so the war ended in 2009, and uh, we never thought it would. I mean, kids who grew up in the 80s, for us, this was a further war, and it would never end. And so um, when it ended, there was a lot of hope amongst, especially among our generation, you know, a lot of um, um, people who were abroad were coming back, there was investment coming in. We thought, okay, now the country can step forward. But I remember that period, um, there was a lot of just debate, the battle of the documentaries online. And I was in Singapore at the time, um, looking at this through a screen, but 
you know, different parties were arguing about how many civilians died in that final stage of the war, um, whose fault it was, and it wasn't our fault, it was those people who, um, and it was just squabbling, and I just thought, okay, what if, um, what if the dead could speak? But I wasn't that courageous to set it in 2009, because even now, talking about 2009, talking about the Easter attacks, these are, these are contentious issues, but I thought 89 was so far back in, in the past that I could, could write about it. And yet, when I unraveled it, I, look, the, the real story, if you think this is gruesome, the real story is far more so, um, but it seemed like a perfect place to set this murder mystery, where the convention of a murder mystery is you have a corpse and you have a, uh, multiple likely suspects, and um, so this war photographer who was involved with all sides, uh, there were five different parties who could have wanted him killed. So that also allowed me to look at the JVP, the LTT, the Sri Lankan army, and look at the different agendas and so on. So it was a complex situation, but um, a great place to set a ghost story and a murder mystery. I mean, I, I, with all these competing strands, I guess most sensible authors would have picked one strand uh, and focused on it. Uh, but within the first 10 pages, we're fully in all of these various conflicts all happening at the same time. Um, was that always an attention? When you, when you were researching, were you thrown by just how much was going on at, the, at that period? Yeah, sensible author. I wouldn't have taken seven years to rewrite this thing. And um, yeah, because if, if you put that down as, um, as a premise, you, as a thriller writer, you'd say, there's way too many plots here. Let's get rid of this, let's get rid of that. Um, but I guess what kept me focused was I thought, okay, there's a lot going on, but it's, it's a murder mystery he's got. And the seven moons, that's the ticking clock. So that's part of Sri Lankan folklore, but I think it's, um, you see it in Asia as well, the idea that the, the spirit hovers around for seven days before it goes to their next resting place or wherever they're going. And so you have the ticking clock, uh, the seven days, and uh, all the likely suspects. So I thought, okay, the only difference here is the, the, the corpse is the detective, because the detective's all these bumbling guys who are not sure whether they're supposed to solve the murder or cover it up. And um, um, so the corpse is, uh, uh, is doing this. So that was the real spine of the book, but of course, yeah, if it's a ghost narrating the story, I have to figure out what the afterlife looks like and what ghosts do when they're not going boo. What, what do they do for the whole, uh, for the 24 hours? Where do they hover around? What do they do? What kind of conversations do they have? So there was those two levels, which should have been enough, but yeah, there's also a love triangle there. <laughs> and um, uh, a few bit of, yeah, a few jokes, a bit of ghostly philosophizing. So yeah, I was aware that this thing was getting out of control. Um, but you know, first few drafts, you kind of go with it, and I think the next, the last three years were spent kind of unraveling bits and realizing what was the story and what wasn't. Um, so yeah, I was aware. I always try and write a simple book when I start, and I always, like, my third novel I've started on, and I have a deadline of December next year, which is very optimistic by the publishers. The, the first one took four years, this one took seven, and... Um, um, yeah, so two years in which to write this, and let's, let's see how it goes. Um, but I don't know. I guess my experience is I don't plan, and I think that's, maybe that's a failing. Maybe if I'd plotted the thing out, I would have, but I started writing it, and then suddenly this ghost appears, this demon appears, and it, they've got interesting things to say, so I kind of stick with them. Um, so yeah, I was aware that it was going crazy, but I kind of just went with it. Yeah. <laughs> but one, I guess one of the interesting things about it being a murder mystery is that in that period, people were disappearing and no one 
was bothering, bothering to figure out who, who they were or trying to find them. And so it's kind of interesting that therefore you'd set it with the ghost trying to figure out who killed him because everyday people wouldn't necessarily be all that interested. I mean, to this day, to this day you have from 89, you have mothers holding photographs of their children just asking for answers. And um, I mean, 89 is, seems like almost ancient history, but you have that from the last stage of the war. And I think this is one thing that always bothered me, that crimes never get solved. Um, because someone asked me that, why, if you're writing detective fiction, which you claim you are, even though it gets mistaken for literary and gets given awards, I'm still right. Um, I, I still, yeah, I still think I'm writing straight, stu uh, you know, airport fiction that can be next to Lee Child. Uh, I mean, that guy pumps out a book every year, and I'm, I'm envious. Um, <laughs> Um, but, sorry, I lost uh, track of the question. <laughs> well, just the, the fact that it had to, you had, it takes someone to be dead to, in order to care about finding Yeah, okay, so, they said, why are there no detectives in your detective fiction? And I thought about it, I thought, well, crimes don't get, we don't have a Sherlock Holmes who comes in and smokes the pipe and says, yeah, it was that uh, terrorist who did this, or a Poirot who twirls his moustache. Usually, we have theories, we have lots of conspiracy theories, lots of narratives, and then another catastrophe happens and we forget about that and we move on. And it seems to be only the journalists who go out there seeking the truth, trying to uncover these things, and a lot of them pay the highest price, pay with their lives, as, as Mali Almeida did. So that irony, I was hyper aware of that throughout the book, that um, these murders don't get solved. And uh, that's why a lot of these ghosts that feature in um, Seven Moons, and the original title was Chats with the Dead, which is what I thought I was doing. I thought Mali Almeida was going around interviewing the different dead. All of them are unsolved murder cases. And uh, they have a lot to say about how Sri Lanka has treated them and what they think of Sri Lanka. Um, so yeah, I think that, that was, that, that's where I think the fiction writer can come in, because um, these cases are all well documented, but there's no conclusion. As with most true crime, I mean, I've, I've spent, you know, true crime podcasts, you, go, you spend, invest your time, and 20 episodes later, you don't know, did he do it? Did he not do it? Was it that guy? Um, you're not sure, and that seems to be the case with all this. So I think as a fiction writer, you can at least offer some sort of solution or resolution to it, or explanation at least. I mean, given, um, well, given the contemporary kind of issues that Sri Lanka is facing economically, I mean, how much of the past is forgotten? Uh, there's so much uh, horror built on top of horror, built on top of horror over the last few decades. How much of the things from the 80s do people still still remember? Not enough. Not not enough, really. Um, I, and that's why I felt safe writing about this. I thought no one's going to take offence. Everyone's dead, and all this stuff is forgotten. Um, but still, I think there is, uh, and I get these comments uh, among very close friends, um, and you know, there's always trolls reviewing the books saying, why are you talking about this stuff? It's done, it's forgotten, it was a terrible time, we all know that. Why are you bringing it up again? Do you want it to, to happen again? And of course, the opposite is true. You, you want to talk about it because you want it never to happen again, but I, I just feel that we don't do a good job of, I mean, even just uh, talking about it, um, so one experience I've had with Seven Moons is that, um, see, with my first book, Chinaman, The Legend of Pradeep Matthew, about a, a drunk and a forgotten cricketer, my, my core audience were middle-aged men who were into cricket. Yeah, that was, that was basically my fanboy base. But since then, 
since obviously the book, uh, um, it's, I've had a much wider audience, a lot of young people saying, um, who were born in the 90s and afterwards, saying, um, yeah, our parents, we are aware that a war went on, but our parents don't talk about it, the teachers don't talk about it, we're not talk, taught about it in schools. And you don't need to go back as far as 89. I think um, the Easter attacks of 2019, again, many narratives, many conspiracy theories, a few arrests, um, but no real culpability. And, and I'm glad to see like now, because I thought, okay, now the economic collapse has happened, Easter attacks is gonna be ancient history and we're gonna move on. But now there are groups who are talking about what happened and let's, let's investigate that. And again, it's seen as a, a dodgy political position to be in because it, it said, well, if you're talking about war crimes, you're talking about these things, you're being unpatriotic. Um, but I, again, I think the opposite. I think, um, and, and the argument's always, well, how can the Americans accuse us of war crimes? How can the British look at what they did and all that? But you know, this whataboutery doesn't, doesn't help. I, I just think for our nation's soul, for, for Sri Lankans, we should understand that past, and I think that's the role that fiction writers can play. I, I'm interested in how you talk about the afterlife in the book, uh, and it feels like a particularly cruel joke to, for Sri Lankans to, who are fed up with the everyday bureaucracy to jump straight into an ineffectual bureaucracy in the afterlife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so the afterlife, this is the thing, uh, no one knows anything. You can, uh, it's, it's, hard, it's very difficult to interview a ghost with any authority and get, get some feedback on that. So I did, because I had to construct this, at least construct afterlife that'll be consistent and have some rules to it. Um, so I went to the religious texts, uh, I read philosophers, I read uh, near-death experiences and um, you know, a lot of cases describe the idea of the light and having a guiding figure and walking towards it. Um, and I watched a lot of horror movies, read ghost stories, uh, but in the end, this, when I stumbled upon this idea that the afterlife wasn't a place where all secrets will be revealed, where you open your eyes and, and the universe makes sense, it, it actually seemed more consistent with the Sri Lankan reality that you wake up and you've got a piece of paper and you've got to go and get it signed at counter 42 <laughs> and the dude's gone for lunch for the last hundred years, so you have to wander around waiting for them to turn up. And, um, and I had this experience, I mean, during writing the book, every time I ordered a book uh, on, you know, Amazon or Book Depository, you'd sit there, I'd have to give up a whole morning because I'd sit there, my book's over there, but this paper's got to be signed over there. And I had my passport renewed. I mean, there's plenty of examples. Uh, yeah, right after the book, I had to get my passport renewed, and I was in, yeah. I was in disguise, so I put my face mask on, but yeah, the computers are gone down that day. So, it was, and I was thinking, wow, I'm, I'm in this, uh, uh, this dystopia that I just wrote about. Um, but one thing I will point out is that since 2022, and that, that's an anachronism in the book, uh, or in, in inaccuracy, Sri Lankans have learned how to queue. Um, so we have, you see those petrol queues that went around the block, they were orderly and, well, you know, orderly by a Sri Lankan standard, but you know, they didn't tolerate people jumping in and all that, so suddenly that's one skill we've acquired by, from this economic crisis. Uh, but I think, you know, the, the afterlife, firstly it was, because like I said, I don't plan, so it was a good opening scene that this atheist, nihilist, who was convinced that there can't be anything beyond uh, life and death, uh, that there can't be a God, there can't be a cosmic plan because of all the atrocities he'd seen, and then he wakes up 
to this bureaucracy and um, flabbergasted that there seems to be some rules, but he can't quite understand what they are. So it, was, it had this absurdist com comedic um, appeal to me to write that first scene. But when I thought of it, I thought, this is uh, perhaps a plausible or one plausible explanation about why Sri Lanka goes from catastrophe to catastrophe. Maybe it's, um, because I've heard theories, yeah, the island's been cursed since Queen Kuwaini cursed it 2,000 years ago, um, or the colonial masters are to blame, or, or so on. But the idea that actually it's just a bunch of restless spirits, all these ghosts of our past who haven't found resolution in reality are floating around whispering these bad ideas in people's ears, and that's why we do stupid things over and over again. It just, uh, so, that, that conceit worked, so that's why I went for it. And yeah, I think a lot of people, in, a lot of readers in Southeast Asia certainly relate to it and, and, and find it plausible. Yeah. One, of the, one of the challenges you had is obviously giving voice to this ghost. Um, and you've talked before in, in other interviews about how you use a second person as a way of doing that because you don't know what a ghost looks like, you don't know the physical way they might conceive of the, the space that they're in. Yes, yeah, so the second person, again, it was uh, problem solving. So what does a disembodied voice uh, sound like? Yeah. What does an invisible wall look like? How? Because um, um, usually you can describe your protagonist, but what are they wearing? Are they wearing the thing they wore when they, and, and are they the age they were when they died? And, and all these technical details, which I had no clue about. Um, but I think, so the first thing was the voice, so Izzy, so I wrote it in the third person initially, and Mali Almeida was just a, one of an ensemble of characters, but then when I realized he was the, he was the chief protagonist, I did it in the first person. But then um, it didn't quite seem convincing, and after pondering it, I just thought, well, if anything survives um, the death of your body, perhaps it's the voice in your head, and the voice in my head is in the second person. It's someone else telling me, uh, you should have worn a cleaner shirt today, you should have uh, got a bit of two more hours sleep uh, last night, you should have done, it's like an external someone, to, uh, so I don't know about the voices in everyone else's heads, but mine's in the second person. And um, so I just started trying that out, because look, uh, writing a short story in the second person, which I've attempted, it, it's hard work, and so I didn't know if I could sustain it for a novel, but it seemed to flow, and I think also what I noticed is that the, um, the narrative voice and the Mali Almeida who lived from, whatever, 1950 to are slightly different. The Mali Almeida, the way he talks in, in flashbacks and the narrator, they are the same person but they're not quite. And I think in the audiobook narrated by um, the very talented Shivanta Vijay Singer, he, and I didn't brief him on, on this, but he clocked it. He, uh, the, the narrative voice that tells the story is slightly, a slightly different register to the Mali Almeida voice. So, and then there's also a lot of interrogation later in the text. Who is the you telling the story? Who is the you whispering your thoughts? And I've often wondered that. Uh, you, you always think your thoughts originate from yourself, but we've all had that moment, you know, what was I thinking? Why did I say that? Why did I do that? And, and the idea that maybe there's someone sitting on your shoulder whispering in bad ideas into your ear, and Mali wonders that as well is the you telling the story me, or is it the previous you I was? And so there's a bit of kind of philosophical meandering about that. But it just seemed, I think the, the short answer is, it just, I tried it out, it made sense, so you go with it. And usually when you're writing, you're writing on in, uh, instinct. Um, so, but yeah, I think the voice in your head in the second person, that's where it started from. But you're right, it, it does feel very accusatory when you're, um, when you're reading the book as well. Like a, Mali is constantly kind of being told off 
uh, through, mm. throughout, the, throughout the narrative. Almost like the voice of his conscience, because yeah. the, vo the voice calls him a gambler, a slut, and, and all of that, and uh, it's not a very flattering voice, so yeah, I think there was that element as well, yeah. Well, I'm interested in also now the, the, the gestation of the book, because it, it took a long time to write, and you, you said that uh, before. It started off as a, a slasher book, didn't it? A slasher horror, yeah. So, um, invented by, um, I believe, Dame Agatha Christie, um, who, um, you know, one of my favorite books as a kid, uh, has a, um, uh, yeah, I can't say it out loud title anymore. It, it's now called And Then There Were None. But uh, it's, uh, the cover that I had had like gollywogs hanging off their necks on the cover, and it was 10 little um, N-words. Uh, but I, I remember reading that, and um, you know, 10 islands go to a, uh, sorry, 10 islands, 10 people go to an island, and one by one they get knocked off. And I realized, wow, she invented Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Scream, uh, there's a new one, Glass Onion, it's the same riff on that. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna do a riff on, on this, and see, someone should write it, really. Um, it's a, it was about a, a busload of aid workers who were traveling around the tsunami-ravaged coast, and it's based on a true story about these 14 aid workers who were massacred uh, out east, and again, another unsolved murder. These were young kids um, going to build um, toilets for refugees. These were, these were the good guys, and they were murdered, and um, yeah. It's, it's, you can Google it, but there were inquiries, again, unsolved. Um, so I thought, okay, these, this bus full of these young people trying to do good travel, and it seemed a good premise, but um, I don't know why it didn't work. Perhaps also I, uh, I made the fatal mistake of getting married and having kids, so I had a, a, a one-year-old and a three-year-old at the time when I was writing this, so maybe my thoughts were muddled. But uh, I remembered when, when I finished it, it was absolute mess. Um, and I put it away and I started writing kids' books. I thought, yeah, I'm gonna write A Hungry Caterpillar. That's like, forget writing literary novels that no one might read. Um, I'm gonna write A Hungry Caterpillar. That thing sells a million copies every year since 1969. And um, so me and my brother said, okay, we're gonna do kids' books. I did some short stories. But then this is what the difference between writers and civilians, I think. Um, Civilians write badly and think, well, maybe this is not for me, I'll do something productive with my time, but writers don't throw anything away. I went back to that manuscript, Devil Dance it was called, and uh, the only thing that survived was Mali Almeida, the, the ghost on the bus, who was like a bit of a shadowy figure, and I thought, and when I found out he was a war photographer, I thought, okay, this is the guy you need to be writing the story about. But this is the, the, the sad thing, is it takes just as long to write a terrible book as it does to write a decent book, as all the writers sadly know. And um, that was three, 2015, but I thought, okay, I'm gonna start again and do this. And even this went through a couple of gestations. It was Chats with the Dead, and then I spent the pandemic rewriting it to this. Um, but I think when I had Mali Almeida as the central protagonist and weaved into his character all the conflicts, his relationships, the box under his bed of these photographs that he believed would end all wars. Um, then, and also the second person voice. I think, I, I think when in piece of writing, when you have the voice is when the book exists. And it's the same with Chinaman as well. Um, I wrote it as a straight biography of this genius cricketer, but it's only until I had the drunken sports writer telling the story that the book came alive. Um, so yeah, that, that was, I mean, it was a long seven years, but you know, it had a happy ending, yeah. Yep. Yeah. But even with, so with Chats with the Dead, though, you probably didn't think it was going to have a happy ending because it came out and then it, it, it kind of disappeared, as often books can do. 
what decided what, what made you keep going with, with it once it had already been published? Yes, yeah, so it chats with the dead. So it was done. I submitted for the Gratian Prize, which is the um, uh, set up by Michael Ondaatje after he won the uh, for the English patient, the Booker uh, in '92 for, for Sri Lankan writing in English. So I submitted chats with the dead. It got shortlisted. It didn't win, uh, but you know. Arun Velandawe Premathilaka's excellent play um, deservedly won that year. But I knew this, you know, it was, I knew it was a mess. I knew it had a lot of things going on. Uh, but I gave it to my agent, and um, India was very interested. So there were a lot of uh, publishing in interest from India. Uh, I guess because Chinaman was a bit of a cult uh, hit there, and they want, were, were eager to have a fo follow-up. Um, so January came out just January 2020, just before the pandemic. But during that first year, um, it, it really could, it couldn't find a publisher elsewhere. Even publishers who had uh, who had liked Chinaman, who were receptive to my work, were saying, "Well, this it just seems uh, it seems too much. It seems very confusing. There's a lot going on. I'm not sure a Western reader will know what's what's happening, the mythology, the political situation." And so I was kind of despondent, and I, yeah, I, I told my agent, well, you know, what am I going to do? This I've spent like five years, and he goes, well, you know, Sri Lanka's a tiny country, and no one remembers your wars. Write me another book, and I'll, I'll try and <laughs> do something. But, uh, uh, and that was that until um, um, Natanya Jans and Mark Ellingham, who um, started the Rough Guides. I don't know if you remember, they were like the Lonely Planet, the Rough Guides to, to Europe, to Paris, and so on. So they were travel writing, but they also were independent press that did novels. And I'd done some travel writing for them before, and they'd been very generous editors, Natanya especially. And um, so I just sent them that, and I said, look, I don't know what to do. This thing doesn't seem publishable. And she said, um, I think it's terrific, but you know, it needs a lot of work. Um, the beginning is really confusing, the ending doesn't quite land, and the middle's a bit boring. But, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, but other than that, I think, uh, what a wonderful achievement. People in publishing are very polite. Even, <laughs> like, even the rejection letters you get, you have to read it about five times to, uh, to get, like, oh, what a wonderful achievement. Unfortunately, it's not for us. We don't like any of it. But uh, congratulations and good luck. And, yeah. um, but you know, I, I, I said, OK, uh, we have this pandemic. I'm at home. I've got all these unread books in the house. Uh, yeah, I'll, get, I'll have another crack at it. And she quite expertly. Um, and, Recently, there's been a comparison of Chats with the Dead and Seven Moons, which I could not bear to do. I could not bear to go back to those things. And, and uh, Richard Simon uh, in Sri Lanka um, quite rightly points out the flaws in Chats with the Dead and, um, and says, it is the it is, they are both the same book, they use the same words, but they tell a very different story. And I think that's quite accurate. Um, and so, yeah, so three, two years of editing, uh, it roughly starts and ends in the same place, but we take out bits. There's one scene where we have bodies being fed to cats, which took like 20 pages and uh, three months to do, and Natanya was like, yeah, I know you like your horror movies, but on page 50, body, cats eating bodies is not uh, what you're gonna win you a Western readership. So um, um, we t took all this out, and yeah, so end of 2021, yeah, beginning of 2022, it was done, and I was kind of, um, Relieved that at least the book's going to get published in the UK. It may disappear, maybe no one will get it. But I was kind of content and moved on to the third book. And then I was busy with the um, Sri Lanka collapsing and standing in petrol queues and uh, 
being in the protest and storming the, the castle. And I mean, the, there's novels to be written about, about uh, 2022, certainly, though I probably won't get to it until 2042. I'm still in 80, <laughs> I'm in 89, my second book was 96, my third book's in 2000, so it might take me a while. But yeah, in the midst of all this chaos, uh, got that, that uh, euphoric call saying we've made it to the book along list uh, in August. And, um, that's when I thought, okay, at least the book is going to get reviewed, at least it'll get read um, by some, at least some critics. And um, yeah, I've just been writing each, each step since then. And even when the shortlist happened, I was thinking, well, book a shortlist, you know. This book that couldn't get published uh, two years ago now gets a book a shortlist, that's, that's pretty awesome. Now, um, yeah, Monday, I had to go through all these scary uh, interviews live on TV with the fellow shortlistees who are all terrific writers. And, uh, I remember that Monday of the, the booker, I thought, okay, and I told my wife, okay, you know, someone else is, you know, it's a, it's a dice roll, one in six, someone else will win it, and then we'll have a nice holiday and we'll get back to our boring lives. And, uh, and then my name got called out, and my, my life hasn't been boring, but I haven't written much since then. Uh, but, yeah. but, I mean, I, I guess, I mean, Chinaman, obviously, I mean, I'm a middle-aged cricket fan uh, of South Asian descent, so... Chinaman was perfect for me. Middle-aged, sure. Nearly yeah. middle-aged. Um, the Chinaman was perfect for me, but it, was, it did well. It won the Commonwealth Prize. It Wisden voted the second best cricket book of all time. Uh, it surprises me, though, that it, you had so much kind of uh, so many barriers for people even willing to take a punt uh, and do the edit with uh, Chats with the Dead. Are, th are these barriers that South Asian writers face that our stories aren't deemed interesting enough or um, worthy enough for, for, for publication? Certainly. I mean, I, definitely for Sri Lankan writers, this is not something we take for granted. When you're sitting in Colombo or Gaul or Kandy or wherever in the island you are and writing these things, you think, okay, maybe it might get published in India. That's where you're focused on. Because all the, um, I mean, there's terrific writers in Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, but the publishing industry seems to be focused uh, in India. We, I mean, we have publishers in the rest of these countries, but they're all kind of indies or mom and pop shows. Um, so you don't take, like when I was writing Chinaman, um, I remember I was really interested in story. And usually this is the motivation. You think someone should write it. Um, Aragalea the musical, someone said. That was our struggle. Um, the, the protest that happened 2020, uh, in 2022. Someone should do a musical about it. And I'm thinking someone should. And it's the same thing I thought, you know, a left-arm spinner who played for Sri Lanka who was better than Shane Warne or Murali, but no one remembers him. Someone should write that. Uh, and then after a couple of years, no one does write it, and you think, okay, maybe I'll, I'll, ha I'll have a go at it. And I was interested. I thought, you know, I'd read this book, but, you know, many uh, people close to me were saying, well, it's a lovely story, and my wife told me this, but um, don't, don't be upset because people who um, watch cricket don't read books, and people who read books don't watch cricket, which is a patently untrue <laughs> statement. I mean, I, I think that's quite patronizing on her part, but... Um, uh, <laughs> But I, I thought, okay, I'll do it, maybe it gets into it. And that's, that's what Sri Lankan writers, and that's just the, us writing in English. Those writing in Sinhala and Tamil, I mean, they hope for maybe, yeah, again, getting into India if you're a Tamil writer, or getting translated. Um, so this is not something you take for granted. And I, I, I guess if I had written the momentum after China, so it came out in 2010, if I'd had a book out pretty quickly after that, perhaps that would have helped. But um, 
yeah, it took a good 10 years to write it, and um, Chinaman was kind of, yeah, floundering on the shelves. And um, yeah, I think with each book, it is a battle you don't take for granted that it can get published. Though I suspect my third book won't have a problem. Though I think, so winning these big prizes helps. But a lot of Sri Lankan writers I know, they're still, um, yeah, they're still struggling to, to find, um, and you know, my agent who's uh, you know, now my best friend, now he, uh, he really believes in me and he calls me every morning. Uh, but, he, uh, he, but he told me, he said, you know, South Asian fiction, it had its moment, but uh, it, uh, in the UK perhaps there's an audience, maybe Australia, New Zealand, but you know, in the US, um, unless you're Jhumpa Lahiri, or, you, know, you, you can't take for granted that your book will even find a publisher there. So I think this is the reality. And the thing is, why should, there's plenty of things happening in the world, why should anyone care about a war in a tiny island that happened 40 years ago? So I guess, the, you know, you can't think of that when you're writing. The only thing you can think of is, you know, if I write a really good book, maybe someone might be interested in it, but um, it's not something we take for granted as Sri Lankan writers that you're gonna get automatically published in the UK or beyond. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we should have a little reading and... Uh, oh, yeah. Do we have some time? Okay. Okay, so I'll, I'll read a bit. I know this, this book contains like demons and ghosts and talking animals, but I, I'm gonna uh, uh, read a bit that contains no ghosts and no demons and no talking animals. The, the most, I guess, realistic section. Um, it deals with the two cops who are investigating this murder. The neighborhood was called Kompanya Vidya by the Sinhalese and Komanu Teru by the Tamils, both meaning company street. The British called it Slave Island. These names persist today and provide unsubtle clues to how natives and colonizers viewed one another. The back of Hotel Leo is an abandoned lot that serves as a rubbish dump for the neighborhood. The surrounding streets are crumbling buildings and slums the crenellated rooftops occupied by worried cats and bored bats. Uh, body was here? Detective Kasim points to the dent in the garbage bags with the splatters in red. Kotu and Balal nod. You thought this was the drop-off? Sir, this building is the drop-off point, says Kotu. You didn't think there was too much blood? Uh, didn't think like that, sir. Kasim shines a torch up the walls of the hotel. It looked like red and brown paint had been thrown down its side. You didn't notice those stains? Uh, sir, when collecting garbage, uh, no time to look at scenery. Keep talking like that, huh? see what happens, snaps Detective Ranchagoda. From today, both of you will give full paperwork. Balal and Kuttu are silent. Kasim shines his torch around the rest of the dump. The night has been one of bad smells. A breeze whizzes past him and makes him shiver. Detective Kasim turns to Kuttu. So he was thrown from one of those balconies. Uh, not by us, right? Balal nods. Kuttu coughs and looks away. So where's the rest of the body? Kuttu looks at Balal, who looks at his feet. Uh, it's gone, sir. So I'm supposed to give his mother some limbs, a shoulder, and uh, I, I don't know what that is. How do we prove it's Almeida? Ranchagoda speaks up. If he was taken in before, Maybe his prints will be on file. Kasim shakes his head. I trust our fingerprint department less than I trust you. Where is the head? Uh, we threw it in the lake. I, I don't want to hear it, okay? Get me the head. I don't care if you have to drain the whole stinking bearer. We need it tonight. Kuttu picks up the phone in the office and gets Driver Manli out of bed. Detective Kasim 
lumbers towards the lift. What are we doing, detective? Asked Ranchagoda once they are out of earshot. You better put in for overtime, Puta. Ranchagoda pauses outside the lift, but does not go in. Kasim gets inside and holds it with his finger. What's the issue? Look, first you say you are transferring away from all these corpses. Now you want to put in overtime? We have our job to do. And, and what's our job? We protect the innocent, says Detective Kasim. Uh, I thought we protect the powerful. Do we need to discuss this now? Kasim takes his finger off the button, which causes the, lift, the doors to close. He curses and sticks his arm out to block the lift's jaws. Boss, I'm confused about another thing. Get in the lift now. Are we investigating this, or are we covering this up? Thank you. I mean, one thing that obviously came through in that reading is, is the black comedy. And, and, and when people talk about Sri Lanka, they talk about the, sh the fact it's the shape of a teardrop and the, uh, the tragedies and, the, and everything like that. But one thing that I think crosses a lot of the, all of the cultural um, barriers in Sri Lanka is black comedy and humour. Um, your books are very funny, despite their subject matter. Uh, and why do you use humour in, in the way that you do? So I don't know if I use it in that I write a grim, depressing story and then I inject jokes in, into it. It seems to come from the narrative voice. And these minor characters, you know, they were revised quite extensively during that pandemic and uh, during the final, final edits. Because one thing Natanya said is she said, you know, all your middle class characters seem to have nuance, but your, your minor characters, the garbage disposes so garbage, Kunukarya is a euphemism for body disposers, so the, the, the garbage disposers, the drivers, the cops, they all seem alike. And I think, you know, that was her polite way of saying that I'm a class snob, which, uh, I, th which, which I took as quite accurate. And, I, and so now, when you look at, say, Detective Kasim, Rancha Goda, um, yeah, Kotu Balal, they, they're all like different degrees of, it's not quite good cop, bad cop, but some of them think they're doing their job, some of them believe they have no choice. One of them is just a thief and says, I can't get a job now, so I might as well chop up bodies and uh, take the paycheck. Um, and so there's all this, the conversations, I don't know, I, I couldn't do them straight. It just seemed a lot of absurdity, these guys debating over whether to chop the body up or whether to feed it to the cats and all of that. It seemed to have this dark humor to it. But also I think this is the choice of the narrative voice as well. So W.G. Karunasena from the first book. Um, you know, this is a guy who's drinking himself to death. Um, and the doctor says, you have 12 months to live if you don't stop drinking. Are you going to stop drinking? He goes, well, not really, but I'm going to do a documentary about cricket because that's what we need to do. And so it should be a depressing story about this guy drinking himself to death. But of course, it's went through his insight, through... Um, and this is experiences hanging out with drunken uncles, listening to their stories. Their lives are quite sad, but their stories are quite humorous. And um, even Mali Almeida, I mean, he's a bit of a smart aleck. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's a nihilist. He, has, he knows how the system works and has no illusions about his place in it. But also, he's, yeah, he's a closet gay man and I guess has that kind of closet queen cattiness to him. And I think... Uh, Maybe I'm attracted to these kind of characters because I can tell these gruesome parts of our history, but with a bit of a smirk and... Uh, but, you know, you run the risk. You don't want to come across as glib or trivializing it. So it is, a, it is a fine wire act, but I think 
when you've done it for, and maybe this is why I need to spend so many years on the book, I think when you've done it for a while, um, the voice starts speaking to you, and so a lot of these observations come from the character voices. So people tell me, um, yeah, you say some really unkind things about the Sri Lankan flag, and I say, no, no, it's not me, man, it's Mali Almeida, that guy is out of control, and he's gonna get into trouble for it, uh, nothing to do with me, and uh, that's how, I don't know if anyone's buying it, but how I kind of say that, yeah, the politics in the book is not quite my politics, yeah. Uh, well, I'm interested in the, the queerness of Mali Almeida and, and why, um why you present him, why, why he's a queer character in the book, and the kind of recklessness that's kind of associated uh, with the way he um, deals with the relationships and his, and his friendships? Yes, so Mali Almeida's character, and I, mean, I think most of the characters in the book, they're based on, like I said before, unsolved murders, and, um, and even based on is probably inaccurate, I would say inspired by. So Mali Almeida's inspired by Richard de Soisa, who was a, a, a murdered activist of around that period, 89, 90. Um, and there was a recent review that I was telling you about um, by Richard Simon, a Sri Lankan writer who compares, compares Chats with the Dead and Seven Moons. Uh, and and he, one thing he observes, he says, I didn't want to read this book because I grew up with Richard, he was my friend, and I used to hang out at the art center uh, in, in, in the 80s, and um, I didn't want to revisit that time. But then when he read it, he said, you know, those fears were unfounded because Mali is not Richard, even though their CVs match. So, so Mali Almeida is a, a war photographer, a gambler, a promiscuous homosexual man, um, and uh, Richard de Soisa, was, I mean, I, he wasn't a gambler, he wasn't a war photographer, he was an activist, he was a theater person, um, quite outspoken, and he was a newsreader. Um, and, but Richard de Sousa was also a closeted gay man. Um, I guess in 1989, there was no other way to be, especially in, even in liberal Colombo society. Uh, so I think when the book evolved, I, I realized I don't want to write a biography of Richard because that's been done, and I don't know if I, yeah, uh, I'm the person to do it because I, come from a different generation, well, at least one generation after. So Mali Almeida evolved, um, and I think this was the only de detail, that he was a, a closet queer man. Um, and I didn't see the need to change that because it seemed, it, it made sense why, because I had to explain why would this Colombo middle-class English-speaking kid go to these uh, dangerous places uh, when he didn't have to and, and photograph these atrocities. But, I think him being a man of many secrets, that made sense that he could go there. And it was also ego. He found one thing he was very good at, and he could get that shot, which no one else could. He was, because he was Mali Almeida, not visibly Sinhalese or Tamil, and he spoke all the languages, he could uh, you know, infiltrate all these groups and do that. Um, and, but also, I think he was able to express himself sexually in these war zones where no one was looking, and that was another appeal that he could go and lead this double life. So that's why the details stayed. Um, but in Richard's review, which uh, um, you know, came out a few days ago, like he, one thing he points out which is quite insightful, he says, the, for those who lived through it, we weren't as detached as the characters in your book, that um, we were, you know, born in the 50s, young people in the 80s, we were quite idealistic. We all had skin in the game. We all knew that going to work you know, during a JVP hardpal, you could end up with a bullet. And, uh, and Richard and others like him were quite passionate about it. And this dispassionate character, he said, belongs to the author's generation, Generation X, the kids who grew up in the 90s, who, for us, we did, you know, 
we didn't think this war would ever end, and so we distracted ourselves by you know, watching cricket, partying, um, playing rock and roll, writing novels. And, um, and, I th and I thought that was quite an astute observation. And he said, I don't mean this as a literary criticism, it's, but it is an anachronism for those who live there. So I think Mali Almeida, maybe he's, uh, he's part of my generation's attitude to the war, this kind of detached guy who's just trying to... Well, he's not even trying to make a buck, but he's, uh, there is a hidden idealism in him. Um, but um, I think, yeah, he's very different from Richard, and uh, they are, I guess, he's a product of my imagination and my time as much as Richard was of his, of his time. But um, now I couldn't, and when I did the comparison, I realized, okay, this is a different character, but that detail of his sexuality, I couldn't see how that could be changed now because it's quite integral to the plot and, and to his relationships. But I guess it made sense, and so that's why I left it in there. Yep. I'm gonna ask one more question, but uh, if you wanna start thinking about coming forward, if you do have questions, then... Um feel free, um, but I'm interested in this idea of detachment. I mean, I know you've talked about being Gen X's po uh, possible explanation, but could also, and this is the obligatory New Zealand question, um, the fact that you spent your kind of formative teenage and early 20s years when you, know, you might otherwise have been thinking about politics, you spent it in Wanganui uh, and Palmerston North. Um, did that detachment perhaps also come from the fact that you weren't actually in Sri Lanka at the time? Yeah, I'll give Wanganui and Palmy credit. I think, uh, you know, I, I, I spent, uh, yeah, age 15 to age 23. Those are formative years. Uh, and so I think you can certainly see the Kiwi sense of humor and the deadpan, sardonic commentary in both of the books. Um, but yeah, perhaps, perhaps that was it. Um, you know, you move away, and while we were there in the 90s, that's when, I mean, this is what happens after the book, that whole generation of political leaders leadership was wiped out. Uh, President Premadas was assassinated, Rajiv Gandhi was assassinated, um, and Atulat Mudali Disanayak, and we, we just lost all that talent. Uh, perhaps that's why we're struck, stuck with the leaders who, who we have, who stayed alive. Um, but, you know, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, I was dealing with Wanganui Collegiate and Massey University, and of course it was the 90s, Kurt Cobain and Tarantino, and we were, it was sort of cool to be detached, and, uh, you know, we weren't, yeah, I mean, Kurt Cobain has a lot to answer for. He's, uh, he's uh, you know, because, again, the contrast uh, uh, between the 80s, you know, the 80s rock, the Eddie Van Halens were all these guys who screamed in falsetto and wore leather pants and were these alphas, and we never related, but then suddenly the grunge thing happened when we were young, and it was like, yeah, this is just dudes dressed as badly as us screaming about how depressed they were and how they couldn't get girls, and, um, and so I guess that, that all informed my thinking and how I wrote, but I think, I wonder if I had stayed in Sri Lanka in the 90s, because I, um, whether we would have become activists, and I somehow think not, because as Richard points out, the 80s, he says it was no, no country for old men or women. A lot of the protagonists, which, and now it's a country, you know, ruled by old men, but, uh, you know, Prabhakaran, the leader of the Tamil Tigers, was 38 in 1990. Mali Almeida was not that young, and, uh, it was mostly the young people, the young, young Tamil militants who were joining the LTT, young uh, uh, Sri Lanka, you know, Sinhalese, and you know, all races who were joining the army, the disaffected youth who were joining the J JVP. And um, so I think, yeah, that was that generation. I think when we were growing up in the 90s, we'd seen, we'd seen 89. We knew, we knew there was no freedom of speech. We knew that, uh, you know, talking... Uh, you know, being an activist didn't pay, and so 
I, I believe that even if I'd stayed in Sri Lanka, we, because I look at people in my age group and they're not as passionate or as uh, we, and now we're quite surprised that, yeah, the generation after us are, are more passionate than the boobers, the, the millennials and the Gen Zs were the ones who were on the street, um, um, yeah, telling the president to step down. We were all sitting on our telly watching it uh, with our hearts beating and we, so, you know, human nature doesn't change, but I think maybe generationally, attitudes to things, maybe there, there is something to this, uh, but maybe, uh, yeah. I've worked in marketing, so, um, you know, I, I'm well-versed with archetypes and generations. Um, but yeah, yeah. Mm. Okay, great, well, we'll open things up to the, to the audience. I think uh, the light's going to come up, so if you have a question, then feel free to make your way to a mic. There's one here and here, and there's, I think, one up the top. Um, two questions, actually. The first is, how did you bring yourself to write about the torture scenes in the book? And then the second question is, have the film rights been optioned? <laughs> Are you a film producer? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you can talk to my people. Um, yeah, um, yeah, the torture scenes. Um, I read about, like, so it's set, there's a place called the palace, and the fourth floor of the palace is where this stuff, and we, we heard about the fourth floor, and. It, look, it became a meme, forget 89, in, um, I guess, the 2010s, right after the end of the war, the white van. That was a meme. Don't say that, a white man will come up and, and, and pick you up and, and, and you'll be done. And, um, yeah, I have had friends picked up by white, white mans. Um, yeah, most of them survived. Some of them never seen again. Um, and um, so I'd read all these reports, and I'd read reports about the Batalan, the torture chamber of 89. Again, um, people don't talk about that, who was involved, who was culpable. Um, so there was enough material for me, me to go on. And you know, you, you, even if you go as far as Wikipedia, you Google assassinations, Sri Lankan assassinations, list literally longer than my arm, uh, Sri Lankan massacres, Sri Lankan atrocities, uh, people gone missing. So there was enough material for me to, to write on. Um, writing it, yeah, it was much harder than feeding dead bodies to cats. It was, it was quite... Uh, and, and also, yeah, that's where the humor goes out. And um, I don't know, I think it's quite sketchy. I just, uh, I, I wrote a lot of detail and we took it out. I think there's very, there's not that much detail. Maybe there's a lot le left to the imagination in those torture scenes. Um, and it's always the aftermath of it. I, I don't know if I could have quite gone there, but I think that that menace is there, especially when, no spoilers, but one of the characters is in danger of going into that. Um, but yeah, it was difficult, and this is not something you want to write about lightly, um, but sad to say, there was plenty of material for me to draw on. Yes? Um. You write about some of the uh, darkest, most tumultuous periods in your nation's history. Um, who do you write these stories for? Do you write the stories that you think others need to read or those that you just need to write for yourself? Well, certainly the former. When you're starting out, it's, it's the former. You think, okay, someone should write that. That's an interesting idea. Uh, and... Um, I don't really think about who's going to read it. And certainly when you're writing the first draft, and this is someone who's revised the book extensively for a Western audience, when you're writing the first draft, you're not thinking of the publisher in London or the, the producer in Hollywood or the editor in New York. You're, you're thinking, uh, well, maybe, um, you know, South, and I've traveled, I've toured around South Asia after the booker, 
And everywhere I go, they say, well, you know, the Pakistani dystopia, the Bangladeshi dystopia, the, the Nepali dystopia, it's very similar to yours, even though the details might be different. So I think initially you are thinking of, yeah, maybe the subcontinent might get it. So, but initially you're writing for readers like yourself. But that, the intention was not to write about the horrors. The intention was a murder mystery and to talk to some ghosts and all of that. But of course, the details uh, come in later. But I think the answer to your question is, um, yeah, you write for yourself or readers like you and hope that if you write it well enough that people who know nothing about Sri Lanka or the JVP or left arm spinners uh, may pick up the book and have an experience. There's a question up there. Hi. Um, so you mentioned earlier how you, um, like you found out that Mali Almeida was a war photographer. So I was wondering, did you have that uh, revelation with other characters where you got to know them, like you brainstorm, but it just kind of came to you? Every time, yeah. Um, I used to do stuff like, when I did the slash uh, horror, I did character bios for all 11 people on the bus. These were like five pages long. What, what do they like to have uh, for breakfast? Uh, what do they do on a Sunday afternoon? What's their favorite album? And I did, that took a good three months of work and in the end, used none of it. And um, uh, now I kind of just do adjectives and I just kind of put one hat on the, so uh, yeah, this guy's, uh, this is the blind prophet in, in the cave, um, and uh, this is the, the assassin with one leg, and I kind of keep them quite sketchy, but then if you're writing long enough, they tend to tell you who they are. And when I found out he was a war photographer and actually quite good at it, and you know, I can barely take a selfie, and uh, even gamble, and when I, and this is again uh, me interrogating the character, why would he do these things? Why would he go to these dangerous places? And him being a gambler also made sense to his sort of worldview um, that it's all odds and randomness. Um, and again, I, um, yeah, I'm a terrible poker player, but I spent a lot of time uh, yeah, reading about war photographers, not just in the Sri Lankan conflict, but the Bang Bang Club and all of that. But yeah, these details do, characters do tell you who they want to be, and that's how I realized that Rancha and Kasim, one of them was actually a political appointee who you know, didn't deserve to be a detective. The other one had worked up the way. And, um, and again, these are things you don't, you can set out to write them before you start writing the book, but I think you may be wasting your time. I think once the book is flowing, the characters uh, tell you who they, who they are and what they want and where they're supposed to go. Thank you. At the front here. At the front. I think that person was next. Oh. You mentioned the current leadership of Sri Lanka. To what extent do you hold that current leadership and the most recent one responsible for any of the atrocities of the past? <laughs> oh, this is a deadly question. <laughs> Uh, the current leadership for the atrocities of 89. So this is the irony, and I, I won't speak the name, like Voldemort. Uh, I won't speak the name of the family. Um, yeah, uh, but this is the irony. The, the, I don't know how to do it. The member of the family who was the, the president in the beginning was a peace activist in 89. In 89, the current crop, that fam they were in the opposition and they were going to Geneva holding placards saying, look at the atrocities happening in Sri Lanka. Um, that irony is there in Chats with the Dead. I think it's been expunged from this, not for political reasons, just because it's an in-joke just for Sri Lankan readers. 
But that struck me that uh, these guys were peace activists during 89, and then when they got into power, they've been accused of far worse crimes, and this seemed to be a, be a theme that it all starts with a worthy cause. A cause. Um, you know, there was certainly plenty of cause for, for Tamil youth to become militant in the 70s. There was certainly cause for uh, the rural youth to rebel against it, but all those movements ended up becoming deadly fascisms and doing more harm than good. And so, yeah, I've dodged your question. Yeah, I do, uh, I've... Uh, so I think that's, that's as much as I'd like. There's much written about the current leadership, and um, maybe you can't put 89 at their feet because uh, they were on the side of the so-called good guys at that time. Um, but, you know, certainly successive leaders have, have failed, failed Sri Lanka, and um, we're waiting. We're waiting for someone to rise from, you know, I'd say under 40, but I'll settle for under 50, uh, just someone young from this struggle that we saw on the streets, these passionate youth who, who don't seem to be encumbered by these racial divisions, even, you know, gender divisions. We, we saw a pride parade during 2022, Aragre, which I've never seen in my life. Um, so we're hoping that there will be a new generation of leadership who will, the goal is, I think, 2048. You've heard this, the centenary uh, movement that by 2048, we're gonna, be, uh, we're gonna be Singapore, which is like 100 years of independence, which is a kind of, Far enough deadline. I remember we were going to be the best test nation in 2000 when we won the 96 World Cup, but this is a far enough goal. Um, look, so I, I think we have been failed by all our leaders, um, but um, yeah, don't get me in trouble. Uh, yeah. Hello. There's a line quite early on in the book about um, the photographs under his bed having the power to bring down governments. Do you think that that's true of war photography? And could you talk a little bit about war photography and its importance? Yeah, so he does say that. So for all his cynicism, he, he does have that idealism. And he says, I wanted to do what uh, Naked Napalm Girl did for Vietnam, but the Naked Napalm Girl picture was after the My Lai Massacre, 71. The war went on for another four years. Um, and I've had to ponder this, uh, not just with photography, um, I was, um, um, you know, various panels around the world. I remember one panel in Delhi was about whether books can end wars. Uh, and I was thinking, I, I really, this is quite an interesting panel to go to because, well, Leo Tolstoy wrote War and Peace, uh, a greater classic than any of us could ever hope for. Didn't, I mean, it's a classic, it's a great piece of literature. Didn't do a great job of keeping Russia out of wars for, for 100 years. And... Um, you can say the same for, I mean, All Quiet on the Western Front. It was just uh, up for Oscars. I mean, I watched that. It's a harrowing watch. It's a brilliantly done movie, and you think that was called The War to End All Wars, and this, this book was supposed to, uh, you know, these children were sent into hell, and this depiction was supposed to end all wars, but certainly didn't do its job there. Um, and so war photography, the reason I was interested in it was that with Sri Lanka's, you know, war fading from memory, I'm struck by how few photographs there are. Even 1983, uh, July 1983, what everyone considers the start of the whole mess. Just the same three photographs that are recycled. Um, so that's why this idea that were there no photographers there, or is there some photographer who's got these, these photos under their bed? Mali Almeida believed that if the world saw these photographs that the wars would end, but the track record ain't great. Um, and so I'm not sure, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be taking the photographs and writing the books. But yeah, 
it's yet to be seen whether, whether they can stop wars. Um. I think we might better squeeze one more question in. Um, so, in the risk of potentially getting you in trouble again, <laughs> uh, I was just wondering, since you wrote about a period of history containing the JVP, I just wondered what you thought about um, them rising, I guess, in popularity again in Sri Lanka and um, maybe what you thought about, think about this kind of Sri Lankan thing of these various movements and things circling back in history, going away, coming back again. Yes, JVP needs a rebrand. They should stop using those, those three letters because you think of 89, the UNP it's, it exists nominally, but it's metamorphosized into a new party. The SLFP, again, they've all, they've all, they're new abbreviations. I don't know who we are voting for this time. Is it the, the PA? Now, the PA was the 90s. Now it's the UNFP and the SLB. And, yeah, so we, there's a chapter on abbreviations there as well. And it's strange. All these uh, political parties are reinvented. JVP has still stuck with that name, and that's why, so for instance, my wife's family were in the plantations during the JVP time. They had a much more harrowing time, and, they, they, and that's why they say we're never going to vote for them because of what they put us through. But I've heard in Colombo circles the, the JVP also reinventing themselves as, as the third party, as um, yeah, the, the workers' party, the party for the common person. And there are the Colombo liberals who are saying, well, maybe rather than voting for these uh, two parties who are going to more of the same, let's. So there is murmurings that the JVP is the good third force. I don't know. I'd, I'm not sure that the, the election results haven't proved that. But I, I do think because, um, yeah, the JVP of 71, the JVP of 89, which were violent movements, are certainly different from the JVP of 2023, at least I hope so. And so, yeah, they should probably rebrand. But, yeah, it is strange that the recircling, even the, you know, the whole country was on the streets screaming for this family to go. And, you know, one of them went, but the rest of them are still hovering around there. It's the same old men hovering around there. So, um, yeah, we need some new talent. We, we need some, yeah. Uh, you know, the cricket team, we seem to produce, like, uh, yeah, mystery spin bowlers all the time. Um, why not? A mystery leader uh, comes out. But, yeah, you're right. Um, the JVP are still, still alive, but, um, yeah, and still somewhat of a force, yeah. Thank you. So for those of you who missed out on questions, uh, Shehan will be uh, at the audience, um, at the table, up, um, also signing table in the foyer. Um, so absolutely, by all means, pick up, if you haven't already, Seven Moons uh, and Chinaman. They're both fantastic books. Um, I'd like you all to put your hands together to thank Shehan. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you very much. And thank you, Brownman. Thank you.